By way of introduction, this, in this first hour, we're, we're going to primarily be considering God's law from Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to just set this up. In this first hour, we're going to look at God's law. In the second hour for the worship service, we will be primarily considering God's gospel from Psalm 22. And God's law for us as sinners, it can, we are condemned under God's law as sinners. The law shows us our need for Christ. It shows us our utter inability to be justified and righteous before God by our own works and merits, which drives us to look for another righteousness outside of ourselves, which is Christ's righteousness, which is the gospel. We will consider the gospel in the second hour. But the law for us, we do not disregard or throw out the law as Christians. We must come back to the law continually to see what obedience looks like for ourselves as Christians now, to see what, it, what Christ-likeness looks like. So, this is what we'll be considering this first hour. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and the verses we'll be looking at are verses 25 to 32, but I want to I want to read uh, verses 17 through 24 first, give us the context of the passage that we'll be looking at in detail. So if you would, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Hear now God's word. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul has laid for us the great doctrines of our salvation, We've been predestined from before the foundation of the world. The the mystery of Christ has been revealed to us. Christ has broken down the dividing wall, which is the ceremonial law between Jews and Gentiles. This is what Paul is talking about. And now God in Christ has made one new man. Paul says that after hearing the gospel and believing it, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We've been saved by grace through faith. And have now become God's own possession. But now in chapters 4 through 6, after detailing to us the doctrines of our salvation, Paul now instructs us as to what that looks like. What what does the Christian life look like? What does it look like to put on the new man? Now that we've experienced God's grace in Christ, how are we to walk? How are we to live now? These are the questions that Paul's answering. So, in the verses we've just read, Paul describes to us generally what the new life in Christ looks like generally. Paul tells us to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. They walk 
in the futility of their mind. Their understanding is darkened and they are excluded from the life of God in Christ. But it is not just that they are ignorant and that they have not heard the gospel. This is not merely an intellectual problem for them. They have hardened their hearts to the gospel, Paul says. We can say that they are blinded, they are dull, they are obstinate, they are closed-minded, and they've made themselves to be this way. They stubbornly refuse the gospel. It's not merely an intellectual problem, but it's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. Therefore, they grow in their callousness. But Paul says in verse 21 that he says, You learn Christ if you heard him and have been taught by him. And if indeed you've heard Christ and been taught by him, then you put off the former conduct. You put off the old self and you put on the new man, which he says has been recreated in true righteousness and holiness. The Christian is a new man, a new creature, regenerated by God's power and grace according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As Christians, as as new creatures, we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We are set apart and made priests in in God's temple. But we are set apart and we are imputed righteousness to us in order that we would actually live, live righteously and live holy. Paul goes on to describe this life, this new life in true righteousness and true holiness in the verses we'll consider now. So Paul, we kind of ask the question, what does this look like to live in true righteousness and to live in true holiness? How are we to act in this way? Is there a standard that we must follow? And that brings us to our main consideration, which is verses 25 through 32. Read with me verses 25 through 32. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We see here Paul instructing us specifically, as I mentioned, how are we to specifically live as Christians? How are we to think? How are we to feel? How are we to act? He addresses our mind. He addresses our affections and our will. He's teaching us how to put off the old man, and how to put on the new man. And that would be the, the title of this, this lecture this morning is Put Off by Putting On. And in these eight verses, we find, an, we find 11 imperatives, 11 instructions, commands to go do something. And we're going to take these 11 imperatives as five points. We'll, we'll make them brief, but five points, or you can think of them even as, as five sub-points to Paul's main point, which is 
put off the old by putting on the new. So let us begin with our first point, verse, 20, verse 25. Therefore, he says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This, this therefore governs the entire uh, paragraph or pericope that we're considering here. Because of everything we've just said, because we've been recreated in likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness, therefore, Paul says, do these things. The command here is to speak the truth to your neighbor. Do this while laying aside falsehood, while putting off lying. Here, Paul's instructing us to obey the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And Paul is very helpful for us in these verses. His instruction here is like that of any good father or mother to their child, or maybe even a good coach to a, to a player in a sport. A good coach, as he's coaching a player in a sport, does not simply say, for baseball, an example would be, don't strike out, don't make an error. A good coach won't just leave, leave it at that. You can't, you can't visualize not doing something. Okay, think about this with me for a minute. Think about, think about someone not striking out, if you're familiar with baseball. You think about someone actually striking out. It's hard to think about something that's not existing. So what Paul actually does for us is he actually tells us something, what not to do, as well as telling us what to do. When parents sit down to instruct a child, the father or mother doesn't, doesn't simply provide prohibitions, don't do this, but a good father or mother will provide commissions. What, what should you do instead? And they'll also provide a, a motive. Why should you do this? And this is what Paul's doing for us. He tells us in so, many, in, in so many instances here, he tells us what not to do. Those are prohibitions or omissions. He tells us what to do with positive commands. And then he tells us why we are to do it. Now, the ultimate motive for all of these commands of obeying God's law, we've already discussed, it's, it's that Christ has saved you. Now, now be like him. But Paul still gives us these more proximate motives, these more near motives for each instruction. This is what he does in this first one. He says, do not lie, but speak truth, because we are members of one another. To lie here is to speak falsehood in order to do harm or to deceive, and it flows from a corrupt heart. It flows from covetousness and from malice. Or it can even flow from a, a lack of faith in God and a, and a fear of man. In lying, you covet what you wish to be true. You covet what is not real and not true. Whether, and you lie about it, whether to make what is false appear true to either puff yourself up, and that is pride or covetousness, or you make what is false appear to be true to hurt your brother or your sister, that's malice. Or you may lie and make what is false appear to be true because you are afraid of what others may think, and that is the fear of man, and that is unbelief. We all experience this temptation. We must decide, rather, to believe Christ and to believe what is true. Lying is the fruit of corrupt thinking and corrupt feelings. It is not the fulfillment of of the law, which is to love your neighbor and to love God. So Paul says, instead of lying, rather do this, rather speak truth to each other, 
for we are members of one another. We must speak the truth from a pure heart, loving God, loving truth, and loving one another. Here Paul is speaking specifically to the church, and he says that we are members of one another like a body. The eye does not do harm to the ear. The body must hear and see. The hand does not do harm to the foot. We are all members of one another, members of the body of Christ. And if Christ is the head of this body, then we, and when we do harm to one another, then we actually do harm to the head. You can think of this in your own life with your own body. When you stub your toe or you cut your finger, it's the head which knows about it. It's your mind which knows about it. Your mind feels the pain and the violence. Likewise, when you lie to your brother, you're doing violence to the head as well as the body. You do violence to Christ who purchased you and your brother by his blood and now lives in you by his spirit. So my question is for this, do you think this way when you tell a lie? Do you think like this when you tell a lie to your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife? You must think this way. Paul instructs us to think this way. He tells us to put off lying by putting on speaking truth. And we do this because we are members of one another. Secondly, Paul says in verses 26 and 27, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. I put this this way, put off sinful anger and put on guarding against the devil. Here we see clearly that not all anger is sinful anger. There's a distinction that Paul makes here between righteous anger and sinful anger. Righteous anger occurs from a zeal for God and a zeal for his truth and true religion, but sinful anger arises again from our corrupt and selfish desires. But how difficult is it for us as fallen humans with fallen minds and emotions and wills? How difficult is it for us to keep from sinning in our anger? John Calvin says that we, when we, we sin in our anger when it arises from any slight offense or even no offense at all. He says we sin in our anger when we go against go beyond the proper bounds of our anger, where, when we prolong our anger or are prone to exceeding anger. And he says we also sin when we direct our anger against our brother at his person and not simply against the sin or the fault. And you know that it grieves our heart and it makes us so sad when we see in our, in our maybe our, our relations, a, a broken family. When members of a family refuse to speak to one another, they refuse to reconcile. When they are so angry at one another, they hate each other. That grieves us and that should grieve us. That should grieve us. For everybody knows that it is contrary to nature. God has ordained the family. They are to love one another. But how much more should it grieve us when we see sinful anger, hating one another in the body of Christ. To be angry against your brother and your sister whom Christ has purchased, this should grieve us much more. So we sin when we are angry with our brother at his person instead of against just his sin or the fault. Now think with me too. You remember, you recall Jesus saying this in the Gospels. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be, a li- will be liable to judgment. The one who is sinfully angry and sinfully hates is therefore violating the fifth commandment. Here we see another commandment. We saw the ninth in the previous, uh, the previous two verses, and now we see the fifth commandment. The one who sinfully anger is guilty of murder. So if you hate your brother, you murder him. And what great and terrible sin it is to murder the one for whom Christ has died. Christ paid his very life in order to redeem your brother, and you're going to put him to death with your anger against your brother or sister? Christ gives him life, but you want to kill him? This is what you do when you are angry against your brother. This is what you do when you're sinfully angry. Therefore, Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. He says, be zealous for the glory of God and the reputation of Christ in his church and guard against these sinful passions, these sinful, uh, sinful emotions. But as I said just previously, how difficult is it for us with fallen minds and wills and hearts to keep from sinning in our anger? This is why what Paul says, he says in the next thing, do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you must be angry, do not cherish it. Do not prolong your anger. For by cherishing it and prolonging it, you sin and give the devil an opportunity. This is the positive command and the motive for putting off our sinful anger. Guard against the devil, Paul says, and do not give any advantage to the one who came to steal, to kill, and to destroy Prolonged anger gives room for the accuser of the brethren. And then you will begin to accuse them as well, but Christ is the advocate of the brethren. Therefore, love your brother and do not hate your brother, for love again is the fulfillment of the law. If you must reconcile with your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife, do it before too long. This is the instruction. You, if you must overlook the transgression, then give it up to God who knows all things, judges all things, whatever you do, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not prolong it. Do not cherish it, even if it is righteous anger. Well, thirdly, let's consider verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Paul has moved now from thinking and from feeling and speaking to acting. He says, put off stealing and put on working diligently and giving liberally. Here, the prohibition is do not steal. Steal no longer. This is the eighth commandment now. You shall not steal. The positive command is work diligently what is good. And again, Paul gives us a motive. The motive is so that you will have something to give liberally with those who have need. The words are obvious and and straightforward for us, but we need to consider all the ways in which we can apply this. There are many modes, there are many ways of stealing, just as there are many modes and many ways of giving. The Baptist Catechism states for us generally that the Eighth Commandment forbids whatsoever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or state. And the Westminster Larger Catechism enumerates for us, it lists a whole, uh, many sins that would be in violation of this Eighth Commandment. They say theft or robbery, receiving stolen goods, valuing things unjustly, extortion, 
bribery, idleness, laziness, wastefulness. These are all ways we break the Eighth Commandment. Also, they say covetousness, envying the property of others, having an inordinate love for worldly goods. And we can also add to this theft of immaterial things, maybe theft of time from your employer or wasting your own time. Even in this list from the Westminster Larger Catechism, we see here the motive that leads us to sin and break the Eighth Commandment. They mention covetousness. Covetousness leads to theft. It leads to idleness and laziness and wastefulness. These things flow from the corrupt heart, a selfish heart. So Paul says, Do not steal, but labor in what is good. Put away idleness and theft, and labor in what is good. And we should note here that we must not labor sinfully. This is part of Paul's commands. We must not labor sinfully. There are forms of gain which are inherently sinful. We can think of prostitution, which is illegal work in our country. That's a sinful form of gain. We can think of of doctors who put to death babies in the womb. That's a legal form of work, though sinful and not good and evil. But even in your own job, you may be asked to act immorally by your employer. You may be tempted to sin in order to get ahead in your profession. But Paul's command is to work in what is good. If you're tempted to lie, if you are tempted to lie and to steal and to cheat in your job, do not do it, but rather honor God and perform with your hands what is good. And the motive here for laboring diligently in what is good is so that you will have something to share with the one who has need. This is important. Charles Hodge, listen to this quote from Charles Hodge. He says, No one is entitled to be supported by others who is able to support himself. This is one great principle of scriptural economics. Another, however, no less important, is that those who cannot work are entitled to aid. And therefore the apostle adds as a motive why the strong should labor, that they may have to contribute to the one who has need. I fear this is too often neglected in most Christian churches today. One of the duties required of the Eighth Commandment is the lawful procuring of bettering your own estate, your outward estate, in order to help yourself and to help those in need. This is 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 obedience to the Eighth Commandment. And this is exactly what Paul says here. He says, labor diligently in order to give of love. It is good to increase your wealth in order to better provide for yourselves and to better provide for those, your brothers and sisters, who are in need. This is how you're able to show hospitality to your neighbor and hospitality to the stranger. And again, Paul says that we should give to those who have need, but there are many modes and many different ways of giving. We can give materially to those in need. We can give of ourselves, our attention, our time, our efforts, Paul says, labor diligently to give liberally. Now, as an illustration of this, I I had a roommate for about nine or ten months before marrying my wife four and a half years ago. And this roommate, we went to the same church, and my roommate had a a very good job. He He had gotten an education, paid off all of his debts. He made he made lots of money, was debt free, had a nice truck. 
And I remember talking with him one time about giving to those in need of the church, considering what we're considering right now. And I remember him telling me that if someone was in need at the church, that he would never just give money. He would only loan money to his friends. And he did this in order to instruct them in proper money management. To teach, to teach, he thought he would teach them how to make money and to, and to handle their money properly. And while I was also living with this man, he also, he, 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 he was married while I was living with him, um, then I, then I moved out, but he married his wife in December, but legally, he legally married his wife in December, but they had the ceremony and then began to act married four months later in March. And I mention that only to say where I, I think that demonstrates where his heart was. He married his wife in December to double his tax deduction, even though he wouldn't officially get married in the church and act married four months later. But this man, he would rather loan a little, he would rather loan a little bit of money to his brother in the church instead of give freely to his brother. He would rather teach good money management than teach his brother the love of Christ by giving freely and liberally, which Christ has done for us in the gospel. Now, this is not to say that giving out loans isn't a, 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 a charitable thing to do or to help your brother with loaning. Is not, that's not necessarily wrong. But we are commanded here by Christ and his apostles to give liberally to those who have need. Our motive must be to show love to others as Christ has shown love to us. We must put on the new man by putting on Christ. And if we do this, we will work diligently with our hands in order to give to those in need. Well, fourthly, let's consider verses 29 and 30. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I put this command this way. Put off corrupt language and put on edifying conversation. We must forbid corrupt communication. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And I think of all of these commands that we're considering, at least for me, this one is perhaps the most crushing Jesus says, I tell you, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Now listen, every careless word that you speak, you shall give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. Now if the Lord should treat us as, if, as we deserve, if he should look upon us apart from Christ Jesus, this would bring us to utter despair. If we were still as the Gentiles in the world, excluded from the life of God in Christ, as Paul says, then our very words would be enough to condemn us before God. But thanks be to God that when the judgment comes, those who are found in Christ will have these so, so great and so numerous sins pardoned for them. And what great motive to watch our mouths now. What great motives to watch our mouths and to guard the door of our lips and to ensure that only that which is good and edifying comes out. We've been forgiven in Christ to live like Christ. Our tongues were made to speak only that which is true. Wholesome, good, and edifying. 
Let us therefore use them in such a way as to give grace to those who hear. Our tongues were made to speak the truth, the mysteries of God, the mysteries of Christ to one another. Therefore, let let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. We must put on Christ. We must speak words of edification, Paul says, so as not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we fail to speak the truth of God in love. But that can equally be said of all the other commandments we've been considering. Listen, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we break his law. Now, I want to say two things to clarify this and to encourage you. First, God does not have passions or emotions like we do. He is unchangeable. If you're a Christian, he set your love, his love on you before the foundation of the world. And Paul just got through saying this in chapters 1 through 3. There's nothing now that you can do to lose your salvation. I wonder if Paul has anticipated this question for us. The question being, if God has set his love on us, and we can grieve his Holy Spirit by breaking his law. What does that mean? Can we lose our salvation? I wonder if he anticipated this question. Because he says, it is the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit's been given to you as a gift and a seal or a confirmation of your inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. By grace you've been saved, you've been justified and adopted, and by grace you're being preserved until the day of redemption, which is the glorification of your bodies. God is not grieved in a way so as to reject you. However, when we sin, it appears he's grieved or quenched because he withholds from us the manifestations of his grace, the manifestations of his presence. By withholding these manifestations of his presence and grace, he's chastening us. He's correcting us with his fatherly care. So so this is the first thing that I want to clarify for you. He does not leave you when you sin. He does not leave you, but he does not manifest his presence. He is there with you while you're sinning, and that is the reason why he's grieved. Not as to reject you, but to chasten you. Secondly, I want to just clarify that we do not grieve the Spirit by some purely subjective offense. And some people, there's, there's strands of Christianity that think this way, where you can grieve the Holy Spirit um, by, by when you leave your house, you take a left out of your house instead of a right. Or you go to the, the refrigerator and you, and you grab a glass of milk instead of a gra- glass of orange juice. They think that they, they, are, they can step outside of God's will in that way. And that's not what Paul's, Paul's talking about here. We grieve the Spirit when we break His law. There's an objective standard when we grieve the Spirit. Grieving and quenching the Spirit is always in the context of breaking His law by not putting on the new man and by not putting on Christ. Again, to grieve the Spirit is to break His commandments. This is what we've been considering this whole time. We've looked at Paul talking about the Sixth Commandment, the Eighth Commandment, the Ninth Commandment, and the Tenth Commandment. Paul's instructions are to fulfill the law in obedience. Obey the law. The Christian's duty-bound now to walk as Christ has walked. And he does this now out of gratitude and love. 
Well, this brings us fifthly and lastly to verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Paul again shows the connection between our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. He says, put off bitterness. That is, anything that would corrupt our minds and our affections. Bitterness then leads to wrath and anger, which in turn leads to the act of quarreling and slandering. He tells us to put off malice, which is any intention of doing evil. But instead, that's the, again, that's the prohibition, but the, the commission is instead put on tenderheartedness. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And this word to forgive in our text can also be used more broadly. It can mean be gracious or to show favor. Be gracious to one another, Paul says. Show favor to one another, even as God in Christ has also been gracious and shown favor to you. This must be, again, the ultimate motive for our obedience. This must be the ultimate motive for our keeping the law of God. These more proximate motives we've been considering are good. They're useful. They're proper. We're members of one another. That's a useful motive. But God, through Christ, teaches us to use these more proximate motives. He teaches us to use them in fulfilling the law. But again, ultimately, the first and the last motive must be love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul says. So to conclude, what what does all of this mean? How, How can all of this be summed up? Well, I think that Paul does it well in in these next... He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. All of this comes down... It comes down to this. Be like Christ. And to be like Christ is to be like God, for Christ is God. Paul said previously that we were recreated in true righteousness and true holiness. If he has made us righteous as Christ is righteous, if he has made us holy as Christ is holy, then let us live as Christ lived. Let us live in true and actual righteousness, true and actual holiness. Let us walk as children of God, for we are his children. We've been justified and now adopted into the family of God. Therefore, love as a child of the one true and living God who is love. Love one another, for we are members of one another. We are all members of Christ's body. We are the temple of his spirit. The spirit of Christ dwells in you and your brother and your sister. Remember this and believe this. Let this motivate you to love and to righteousness, and to holiness. So do you, do you love like this? Are you progressing in the likeness of God? Are you progressing in your own holiness, your own righteousness? Do you think about God's law in this way? Christ freed you to obey the law in gratitude and in thankfulness. This is how you do it. You put off the old man by putting on the new man. You put on the mind of Christ. 
You think about Christ. You put on Christ. And when you fail and you fall short in these ways, when you fail and break God's law, when you grieve his spirit, remember that you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits in heaven even now, on the mercy seat, on the throne of God. And his blood and his presence intercede for you to the Father. You have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though, remember this too, that you do not see it now, you are seated with him there on his throne, righteous and holy before God, just as Christ is. Therefore, let us live like it now in preparation for that great day of redemption, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Let us call on the Lord. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his righteousness imputed to us by grace through faith. We thank you that we can be made right with you by his merits, by his blood and his atoning work for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to obey your law, help us to meditate on your law, to obey it, to live it out in our own lives. Help us to be more like Christ, we pray, by your spirit. We pray for greater grace in our own lives We pray for greater conviction of sin. We pray for greater strength and grace to please you in the way in which we live. God, as we turn our attention in this next hour to the preaching of your word, we pray, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored in our worship that we offer to you. We pray, God, that you would come and meet with us by your spirit, that you would help me as I preach, and also, Father, help us all as we listen and and sit under the means of grace to hear Christ preach to us. We ask for your blessing and for your grace in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.